Hi there. I'm Seth Abramovich. I'm a senior writer at The Hollywood Reporter. And I'm Chip Pope. I'm a TV writer and a man about town. And this is It Happened in Hollywood. We take you on a journey backwards in time to revisit some of the most memorable moments in Hollywood history. Iconic, infamous moments that you grew up with. And we talk to the people that were responsible for them. This week, we have someone who wrote some of the most beloved Disney movies of all time. So let's get to it on It, it Happened, Happened in Hollywood. Welcome back, and hopefully this is a welcome back, and you listened to some of the previous episodes and enjoyed what we're doing here. But if you're like me and Chip, you might have noticed now that we've been covering some dark material. The Exorcist is dark? It's kind of dark, and so is... And like Showgirls? Well, Showgirls was supposed to be dark, and ended up being funny, but uh, but right. if you look at what's actually happening, it's, it's dark stuff. Body foods, yeah. So for the holidays, and then tonight is the first night of Hanukkah, we thought we'd do something a little more family friendly and fun. And so we decided to go to the pinnacle of American family entertainment. We went to Disney. We don't know if you've seen it, but we saw the trailer for the Lion King live action, quote unquote, but that's the wrong term because it's completely CGI remake. So it's the reanimated Lion King. Which, like it was dead and they brought it to life? That would be reanimated. Wow, zombie Lion King. I would watch Whoa. that. Zombie. Zomba. Little Simba. <laughs> Simba's a zombie. Little Zomba. Zomba. Oh my God, that CGI Simba is so cute, though. You just want to hug He it. was. And it was exciting to watch it, and it broke all records for Disney's something like 250 million views in 24 hours. Or even. Oh, man. So clearly this is something that resonates with a lot of people, and... Once again, we went to the top. We wanted the person who created these indelible classics. And we found her. Her name is Linda Wolverton. She's a screenwriter, and she wrote some of your most beloved Disney movies. Like... Beauty and the Beast. And... The Lion King. And... Maleficent, which I misread. I thought was Maleficent for like a long time. I was like, Maleficent? <laughs> Alice in Wonderland, yes. which made a billion dollars. She's the first female screenwriter to write a movie that generated billion dollar profits. She's a giant in the industry. And to our amazement, she said she talked to us. She came to prominence in around the mid 80s. And now this was a period where Disney was going through a bit of a lull when it came to their animated films. Of course, they created Pinocchio, Snow White, all the classics of the 40s and into the 50s. But then they were like on a run of like the Fox and the Hound and the Sword and the Stone. I don't even remember what the other ones. Black the ones Cauldron, in the 80s. a bunch of ones. Oh, no Black one really Cauldron, right? No one talks about, and you don't go on the rides when you go to Disneyland. Exactly. So she was busy doing Saturday morning cartoons at the time, writing for My Little Pony and the Wobbles, or what was it? The Popples. The Popples. These were toy lines that got TV shows made after the toy line was, right. was introduced. You love the toy. Why not watch the cartoon? But she had ambitions for more. I was doing that for four years, and it was just pure fun. And then I saw a Disney animated feature that I didn't like. I just didn't think it was that good, and I arrogantly thought I could do better. 
So I, I had an agent at the time who represented all of us who were doing Saturday morning. And I said, could you get me over there to Disney? And she said, no. She said, uh-huh. you're not ready. And they're not reading Saturday morning writers. Hmm. So I said, well, I have a book. So I drove my book over. I, have a, I had written a young adult novel. And I just drove it over there. And it was before the dwarf building was built. Mm-hmm. The offices were in, you know, Glendale. And I just drove it over. And there was no guards. And I walked in and I put it on the desk. And I said, maybe somebody here wants to read this. And I left. And um, that was Friday and Sunday. My phone rang. And it was Charlie Fink, an executive, who read it and said, you have to come work for us. No security. Come on. What's that about? You know, the book, it's a pretty heavy book, and it was autobiographical, and it's about a a girl who was abused by her dad, and she ends up taking up long-distance running as a way of dealing with it, and then he dies in an accident, and it's dark stuff, not the kind of stuff you would think Disney would be like, ooh, perfect. But that foretells kind of where some of the young adult stuff has gone. It does. A little ahead of the curve, a little maze runner, a a little twilight. And if you look also at just the the undercurrent of a lot of these classic Disney stories, there's a lot of pain and death and... Loss, teaching kids to deal with loss. Right. And so she, I think the overwhelming thing that the executive found was the emotion was there, that this was a writer who was really connected with strong elemental emotions. Right. And that's what they're looking for in making these Disney films. Very proactive to write a book, too. A lot of people think, what's going to happen with this book? But if you can use that as a calling card, it's a smart thing to do. I don't know if it's ever worked in any other time in Hollywood history that someone left a book at reception and they got called in, but it worked for Linda. So now she has an in. She's gotten her foot in the door at Disney and they put her on a contract, like an old school MGM. When you think of like the golden age of Hollywood, that's what she had. They would pay her a salary and she would just churn out writing for Disney. And the first thing they put her on was a version of Winnie the Pooh, where get this, Christopher Robin is an adult man. What? Which is the plot of this year's Christopher Robin. But her version, nothing really went anywhere. But then Disney decided to uh, dig up some of the old properties, like they had old Beauty and the Beast lying around from the 40s that they'd shelved because Jean Cocteau had come out with a Beauty and the Beast movie in the mid-40s. So Walt was like, and didn't want to do it. (laughs) I don't know if he made that sound. but And meanwhile, their moribund animation department Things seem to be turning around. They actually have a hit in 1989 with The Little Mermaid. And this young uh, exec seems to have a real vision for, for where animation is going. And his name is Jeffrey Katzenberg. So Jeffrey tells Linda, we've been working on this adaptation of Beauty and the Beast. We'd like you to look at some of the designs and see if you have any thoughts on it. And some, there had been some sort of a story worked out. And I remember it was beautiful, but it was interesting. I it, They were sort of showing me the boards, and, and uh, I was sitting there, like, oh, well, this is really boring. And right there, she has to escape. You know, where she runs out of the castle. It was like mm-hmm. right there. She has to escape. He has to go after her and save her life because everything has to change now. So it was like this just sort of like dramatic thing that had to happen. Now, Katzenberg was doing something radical at the time that 
hadn't been done in Disney animation, which is until then, the directors with the story editors would come up with the script as they went along. And it was a very kind of, it was like a smoothie. Everyone was working together. The men were all the story editors and the women were all the ink and paint. That's right. Artists. They would do the more decorative things after the characters had been developed and the scenarios had been concocted and, and storyboarded out. It's a and, very sexist division of labor for a long time over there. And what Katzenberg wanted to do was take the traditional live action model of filmmaking, which is you take a screenplay written by someone and you animate it and apply that to Disney filmmaking. Linda became that screenwriter. And she got hooked up with the two guys that wrote the Little Mermaid songs, and they had also written Little Shop of Horrors for Broadway. So they had that kind of Broadway appeal. Yeah, and Mencken was the composer, but Howard Ashman was the lyricist, and so worked very closely with Linda because they both dealt in words. And it was Howard who introduced to her the magic, the secret, the key to every Disney movie. I learned so much from Howard. Probably he was my mentor, even though he would have been a reluctant mentor because he never would have done that. It wasn't his nature. But he taught me so much about writing. And one thing he said about Disney movies is that the animated features, each scene has a sort of umbrella, an aura of emotion. Mm -hmm. And you can just feel the emotion in the scene. He talked a lot about Geppetto's workshop. And how it was just this, this feel of this warm, you know, place where it was homey and safe. So when I write now, if, if I'm writing a fantasy, I think about that a lot. What is the emotional, you know, content of the scene that imbues the entire atmosphere of the scene? Now, tragically, Ashman was suffering from HIV AIDS during the making of Beauty and the Beast. And he kept it pretty quiet, but to the people closest around him, he did tell what was going on. And he had gotten as low as 90 pounds towards the end of production on it. And I think he died just a few days after the first screening. Linda had some very touching recollections of his illness, and she shared them with us. Yeah, and I think back now, he was always so kind of, these early days, so nobody really knew a lot about the disease. And he was really weird if I accidentally tried to drink out of the same cup. Mm -hmm. You know, I thought about it later, like, really? Is that what he was going on there? I mean, he was suffering. You know, he was really depressed. And I remember one time we were crossing the street in New York City and his shoelace was untied. And I said, oh, your shoelace is untied. And he said, I don't, I don't care. So I said, no, no, stop. I'm not going to let you walk across the street with your shoelace untied. So I got done and tied it for him. But he was really going. He talked about this sort of like clouds of darkness and depression. It was a really sad time in history. You know, a lot of artists died, but their work helped bring them out of a depression a little bit. Yeah, and there was so much fantasy and just sort of Busby Berkeley, the scene, uh, Be Our Guest is straight out of a Busby Berkeley musical. There's, there's so much emotion and fabulousness that I think this was an outlet for him at this terrible, terrible moment near the end of his life to, to really just live it out. Together... The two of them conceived of the main heroine in Beauty and the Beast, and this was a radical departure for Disney films. She's adamant that this was not a princess, and not only was she not a princess, she wasn't doing a lot of the things that the women in 
Disney films were doing until then. She was reading. Yes. I mean, what? <laughs> it's kind of crazy that a character reading would be a radical departure, but it was a big part of the character's DNA. That detail came from Linda's life. When she was a little kid, she used to go to the store. Mom would tell her to go to the store, and she'd carry a book the whole time. But if we're going to divide Disney animated films pre and post Beauty and the Beast, I think that would be pretty accurate because the heroines after that were much less motivated by wanting a man to love them, much more motivated by their own interests and passions. I believed so much in what beauty was meant to be and do, what Belle was, that she wasn't, she was no longer the victim heroine, you know, the victim princess who was so... Right, sweet around and sings yeah. and when everybody's being mean to her and whose foot can't fit into a little slipper. And so I really didn't believe any, honestly, as I'm a feminist and I've been, and so I didn't believe that we'd buy that anymore. I just think, I don't want to shove that down young women's throats anymore. So Howard and I conjured up Belle, who was a reader. She wasn't about what she looked like. And even though her name was Beauty, it wasn't about that. So she was always like, that hair was in her face all the time. And she ignored the handsome guy because she was about more than just that. Hello, Belle. Bonjour, Gaston. Gaston, may I have my book, please? How can you read this? There's no pictures. Well, some people use their imagination. Belle, it's about time you got your head out of those books and paid attention to more important things, like me. The whole town's talking about it. It's not right for a woman to read. Soon she starts getting ideas and thinking. Gaston, you are positively primeval. <laughs> Thank you, Belle. I felt so strongly about the importance, having grown up in Long Beach, been to Disneyland every weekend of my life with my, my girlfriends and their birthday parties. I just felt like it was an important thing to do. So I was pretty strong-willed about it, I think, and it didn't make me a lot of friends. Oh, man, she sounds like me. So she doesn't have a lot of friends. And she's going through this whole thing. This whole process is taking about four years of just drafting and trying to convince the story department. And then they don't get it. And then Jeffrey Katzenberg has to go, hey, listen to her. This is the way we're going to do it. You know, that's just the way things worked back then in that male-dominated studio. Right. So, pretty pretty it, grueling work method there. But uh, she said what pushed her through always was the dream of seeing Belle realized on the screen. And then other characters started to pop up. Gaston, the good-looking but completely vapid man who wants to marry her from town, who ends up becoming the villain of the story. Mm -hmm. Switching places with Beast, who starts as the villain and then becomes the romantic hero of the story. Spoiler alert. If you haven't seen this, like, 30-year-old movie, get on it. <laughs> Or the remake. <laughs> Linda comes up with a few household items that sort of sprout legs and start running around. And then the composer said, hey, why don't we have them sing the songs? I mean, it's a musical. Someone needs to sing the songs. Be our guest. Be our guest. Put our service to the test. Tie your napkin around your neck, sherry, and we provide the rest. Soup du jour, hot hors d'oeuvre. Why, we only live to serve. Try the gray stuff. It's delicious. Don't believe me? Ask the dishes. They can sing. They can dance. After all, miss, this is France. And a dinner here is never second best. Go on, unfold your menu. Take a glance and then you'll be our guest. We our guest. Be our guest. 
And then Jeffrey Katzenberg steps in and says, well, if we're making these inanimate objects, characters that sing songs, they need to have very regimented positions in the household. You got a clock, you got a cook, you got a candlestick, the hot maid, and there's the teapot everybody wants to sleep with. Everyone wants to sleep with the the feather duster. Oh, okay. Well, maybe you. I'm I'm more of an Angela Lansbury guy. (laughs) Well, it's funny you should bring that up because there's been a internet theory floating around for a while involving Angela Lansbury's character, Mrs. Potts, the teapot, and her sidekick slash son, Chip, the chipped cup. Hi. Having Linda in the room with us, we had to ask her, if there was any validity to this theory. Have you ever heard this whole like theory debate on the internet about Chip's relationship to Mrs. Potts? <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's it I think it it comes down to <laughs> the age difference. And you know, and having just oh, watched yeah, it, he I does call at her the mom. end of it. I'm like, what? Yeah, because it's Angela Lansbury. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, an 80 year old and then mom. The yeah, that's Jesus mom. <laughs> so the theorizing goes that Chip is the illegitimate son of the beast. Oh. And that he had an affair with the... Um, Mrs. With, Potts? <laughs> no, no. <laughs> no, with the, the enchantress that that put him under the spell. Oh. Anyway, there's a lot of theorizing, you know, conspiracy theories. is yeah. what that is. It's a lot of <laughs> Completely <nuts>. insane. <laughs> but I'll tell you where Chip came from. Okay. <laughs> cool. <laughs> Let's hear the, the actual... Really? Yeah. <laughs> not the conspiracy theory. This is before the internet. You know, there was... So basically, how I learned how to write a musical was Howard said, again, I didn't know anything. He said, let's write, like, for example, let's write through the opening sequence of Bell and write it as if it's not a song. Just write it and just write it. And then, so I would send the scene to Howard. He and Alan would do their thing. And then I would get it back. This is all by fax. Then I could get it back as lyric. And then I would fold the lyric into the screenplay. And then one day we had Mrs. Potts. We didn't have Chip. And I was just fooling around. And I just came up with this little teacup with the chip And I called him Chip, and I sent it to Howard as a joke. And Howard loved it and wanted to create a whole character around it. And then Jeffrey got a hold of it, and there came Chip. But it was just started as just a silly joke. Who is it? Mrs. Potts, dear. I thought you might like a spot of tea. But you're... you're... (laughs) Careful! This is impossible. I know it is. Here we are. Told you she was pretty, Mama, didn't I? All right, Chip, now that'll do. Slowly now, don't spill. Thank you. Wanna see me do a trick? Chip. Oops, sorry. There's the real story. There you have it, Reddit conspiracy theorists. Right? Now, she wrote the screenplay, so she has strong feelings about what is and isn't true in the Beauty and the Beast universe. And... That includes some changes made to the live-action remake that Disney put out in, uh, what year was it? 2017. (laughs) Now, were you involved in the live-action version at all? No. You know, the most controversial thing you keep hearing about that is the relationship between Gaston and his foot. Men or his oh LeFou yeah guess when LeFou LeFou came like came out or something in the movie yeah right? he's like literally <laughs> in love with him in the movie what um, okay it was Here. certainly you know LeFou means the fool mm-hmm. and Howard wanted to have a foil for Gaston and so we had this fool now 
if he was in love with Gaston, no, he was just a, a toady, you know, and besotted with this, you know, person that he could never be, mm-hmm. really. So he was just constantly around. Doesn't mean that they were, you know, lovers. Yeah, do you think that was a strange decision? I do. Were there other things about the live-action one that you thought kind of took away from the source? One of the whole concept of the castle is that it's it's impenetrable. It's not some place that the beast and anybody can leave. And when he, the way that he could get out of the castle is in the mirror or something. And so I really didn't understand that in terms of the mythology. The mythology didn't work for me anymore after that. So there you go. She wasn't thrilled with some of the decisions made in the live-action one. That's quite a controversy. Another thing that came out of the live-action version was people started to complain, actually, about the plot of the movie. Because what happens in it is this self-assured, smart Belle gets held hostage in this castle and eventually kind of relents and falls in love with the beast. And in this climate, that wasn't seen as, you know, a correct thing, a message to be putting out to women. At least some people were complaining that. And we were going to bring that up, but Linda actually brought it up first. And she said, you know, if if we talk about anything today, I want to talk about the Stockholm Syndrome complaint about Beauty and the Beast. So here she is giving her version of what she thinks is happening in this movie. Stockholm Syndrome, really it's based on the fact that the kidnapped victims are the victim. To survive, they take on the, the ideology or the philosophy of their captor. So that's what Stockholm Syndrome is. It's based on a bank robbery in Stockholm mm-hmm. where the, the victims wouldn't go against their captors after. And a little bit of the Patty Hearst right, thing as right. well. So she's, she became like a member of the Symbionese Liberation Army. Belle, on the other hand, doesn't get conscripted. or She doesn't become beastly. She changes him. She transforms her captor. He falls in love with her. She makes him into a man. And then she falls in love with him. Belle doesn't get absorbed. Belle transforms her environment. So that's proactive. That is not a victim falling in love with someone to survive. It's a victim changing them. And she survive. also makes a choice to sacrifice for her father to stay yeah, there. It's not, she like stayed. This, it's not like he puts her in chains or anything immediately. Right. It's a voluntary act. It's a loving act that she does to stay. It takes four years, but... This movie ends up being something of a masterpiece for Disney, makes huge amounts of money, and even gets an Academy Award nomination for Best Picture. First animated movie to get that. And so things change quickly for Linda, but not as quickly as you would think, because she's still under contract with them, making an annual salary to write scripts for them, and she's not even a member of the WGA, the Writers Guild. So she doesn't get residuals for these huge movies that she's creating, huh? No. I was on contract, so it was the same old, same old. I went and I did Homeward Bound, which was cool because I wasn't a member of the Writers Guild. Even though the movie had been nominated for Best Picture, I was not a member of the Writers Guild because oh, animation animation isn't covered by the guild. Wow. Yeah. Is it still is it still that way? Yep, they- it's still that way. Whoa, it's still that way. So That's there are crazy. no residuals what? for animated features at all. That's so, crazy. So until they let you write the Homeward Bound, which was live-action animals. Live-action animals, yes. You, there were people in it. Then I got in the guild. You weren't considered guild-worthy. I wasn't guild-worthy. 
Until I wrote Homeward Bound, yeah. So when you do a live action version and you've done the story for like Beauty and the Beast, right? Did you get credit for that and, or get residuals for no. when they turn it into live action? No. Nope. What? what? Zero. Just, Zero. And you created Belle and you created all of this. Come on, yeah. Disney. Yeah. That's the way it works. Wow. Yep. You get in the park for free? Nope. <laughs> Come on. I mean, at least there should be that. You know, where you get into California Adventure, <laughs> just walk in. Wolverton's here. So yeah, no, no. Years. My credit what is kind of low on the on Beauty and the Beast. It's down the credit crawl a bit too. The, oh my gosh, unfreeze Walt. Who's, okay. it, who's <laughs> in charge now? Tell it, yeah. Bob Iger, <laughs> come over here. Roy Disney Jr. Um, I mean, get to shake them up. And... No, but that is shocking because, like, imagine how much money they've made selling Beauty and the Beast. Everything, billions, I would assume. Yeah. And you don't see any of it? No. The only way I made money on Beauty and the Beast was because I did the show, the Broadway show. Because in the theater, you're an author. As if it isn't an insult enough that she's not considered guild-worthy for writing these these animated features, she's also a woman in a man's world. Animation was traditionally very male-dominated, and I'm sure to a large extent it still is. She didn't have an easy road because she's one of the only female people in the story department at Disney. She's not getting compensated fairly. Yeah, it's the classic time's up scenario where, you know, this is someone who's creating billions of dollars in profit for a company like Disney and somehow is is never getting her just due. But, of course, it's been a big year between Me Too and Time's Up, and she's observed it all with keen interest and a unique point of view and uh, we asked her about that i think for me and all of this is certain button pushing brings up all kinds of stuff you know there's so few women who have escaped unscathed from any sort of abuse there's so few it's such a shock mm -hmm. that's what me too is all about you know but for me being a feminist i felt like you know i was i'm carrying this torch and I've been carrying the torch for a long time. And even when it was not popular to be a feminist, I was still feminist. And now I felt like, okay, great. I can put it down now. I can just do something else because look, you know, we, we beat the door down. Now we're here. And I feel like we slammed the gates. We're standing here on, on the door that, that we broke down. And we're all like going, okay, now what next? And what I'm saying is it better be good. <laughs> what we do, it better be good. Yeah. We don't have an option of it not being good. We have to be, it has to be great, what we do. And I think Wonder Woman was a testament to that. I was so mm. nervous about Wonder Woman. It was like, it has to be good. And it was, and it was great. So we really have to put our money where our mouth is. We have to be everything that we say we've been prevented from being. We actually have to come up with the goods. All right, well spoken by Linda. So back to Linda's journey. So she's written the Academy Award-nominated Beauty and the Beast. Then she managed to finally get her Guild credential by writing Homeward Bound. She was all excited to go visit the set, the outdoor set, when she got a call from Jeffrey Katzenberg. Hello, I'm Jeffrey Katzenberg, head of Disney. I've got an offer for you, Linda. What is it? Write The Lion King. Mm, I'd rather go to the set. No, this is animated, and we're, you're the queen of animation, the Lion Queen, if you will. Please, please do this, Linda. I beg of you. Now, Linda was curious why Jeffrey was so intent on making this movie about a Lion King. And sure enough, he had a personal stake in the story. 
I asked Jeffrey, well, why do you love this so much, the story so much? And he told a story that, that happened in his life of something very significant in his moment of realizing that he had to be a man and step up. And it was a pretty traumatic event that happened when he was a young man. The young father really is what he was. And it was in politics. And I'm not really sort of, I, I didn't really think it's up to me to tell it, the story, but it really was a scary moment in a young man's life. And he had to testify. I remember he said, like, when I put my foot on the, to step up on the, into the stand, he said, I knew I had to be a man. So I thought, okay. And then a part of it was this betrayal by an avuncular figure mm. that was part of his story. Wow. Oh. And, okay. So I'm trying to piece this all together. And I was like, you know, okay, what then? What happens with this young man? You know, he's coming of age. He has a certain expectation. And this vuncular figure has other plans for him and betrays him and sends him to this dark night of the soul moment of when I realize you have to be who you say you're going to be. Be it. The Hamlet idea came about because of the betrayal. So that's sort of how this version of Lion King evolved. So the Lion King story, everything, we think about it, this beloved children's tale, a Broadway musical, all that stuff, it comes from a bad uncle and a studio executive that had something traumatic happen to him. I mean, that's, you never think of that. You didn't see that coming. Yeah, and the next time you see Lion King in whatever version you see it, when you see little baby Simba, just imagine Jeffrey Katzenberg's face on it. Right? Imagine Jeffrey Katzenberg being held off the cliff. What's that cliff called? Keith's Cliff. Jeffrey Katzenberg. Jeffrey Katzenberg. So Linda is now a key storyteller on this on this project, and she has a lot of things to juggle. Plus, she has Jeffrey Katzenberg, her big boss, breathing down her neck, making sure all the details of this allegory to his own life are being properly transposed to the screen. So she decides to do some research and see, you know, exactly how do lions work in the wild? I did research a lot on lions, and pretty much, you know, the, the lionesses are the ones who are the cool ones. Mm. They do all the hunting. They're the ones that are the pack leaders. They can take care of the young. The lions just are sort of like these losers on the outskirts <laughs> and they come in and do their thing and then kill the babies. They kill the cubs so that they can procreate. So they're not really that great. So that wasn't <laughs> a really a good, you know, besides the king, you know, it's, it's not natural to the animal kingdom. Kings and queens, that's a human construct. So her research wasn't really helping the situation because Jeffrey wanted his king and his line of succession. So she turned instead to more tried and true storytelling techniques. Oh, okay. She had to come up with Simba's journey, right? Simba's journey. And for that, besides the Hamlet influence, which she already mentioned, she turned to Joseph Campbell's journey, which is the same blueprint that created Star Wars and many other things. And created the TV show Girls, right? That was based on <laughs> Joseph Campbell. Joseph Campbell is a young lady. <laughs> but um, she actually had to type out a memo explaining to her uppers at Disney, you know, how Lion King 
pulls from Joseph Campbell and Hamlet and other famous storytelling templates. And so she brought that memo in and read us a bit of it. It was pretty interesting. This is Chris Vogler's summary of Hero with a Thousand Faces. In his summary, Chris Vogler says that movies are built in three acts, the hero's decision to act, the action itself, and the consequences of that action. In Simba's case, the three acts would be the hero's natural path to becoming king is distorted by the untimely death of his father. Two, the hero foolishly follows the villain to his own demise. Three, the hero's confrontation with himself, his decision to act, and the action itself. This is where our story veers away from the traditional hero myth and heads more into Shakespearean country. Like Hamlet, Simba is dealing with a treacherous uncle who caused the death of his father. While Hamlet is beset with indecision about avenging his father's death, Simba is blithely ignorant of the truth as he follows his uncle to set him up for the fall. So, wow, that's really interesting because it just puts it in that huge, sweeping, epic territory. Yeah, and it was... So cool to have this memo read to us that was basically the DNA of this entire story that's now almost like biblical in in terms of how much people respect and know the story inside out. So they knew they wanted to create some kind of Bambi in Africa. And there was clearly, if it was going to be called the Lion King, and it was about this baby lion named Simba. Simba Katzenberg. (laughs) That eventually he was going to have to be king, which meant that his loving father, Mufasa, unfortunately, would have to bite the dust. And this is where Linda's research into Africa actually paid off in a big way. If he's going to really be king, his dad has to die. How is it going to happen? And how is Simba going to mistakenly feel responsible for that? So there's like a question of how are we going to kill Mufasa, who is like the best dad ever? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you right. know, the best dad in the world ever. How are we going to kill him? We could throw him off a cliff. You know, all the t- traditional ways of murder in a <laughs> animated <laughs> right. movie. Lines I was, with knives. <laughs> yeah, how can we do it? Let's see. Back me TNT. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. TNT. So I was, I was doing research on um, Africa, and I found this book on the wildebeest migration, which is intense. And they, there's these, oh, these photos of the wildebeest just trample each other. They just, like, run all over each other. There's, like, dead wildebeests on the side of the rivers. And I thought, oh, yeah, let's trample them in a river of wildebeests. That's what we're going to do. We're going <laughs> to set them up and kill them in wildebeests. Scott! Brother, help me! So I pitched this idea. They're like, we can't draw that many wildebeests. <laughs> I'm like, yes, you can. You have that computer from Beauty and the Beast, you know, the one that swirled around. You can do it. Oh, yeah. You use the uh, wildebeest generator program that came standard with all gateway computers. <laughs> but I think it's worth noting that Linda read about these wildebeests in a book. So remember, keep reading. She's like the original Belle. She's walking around reading a book. So, you know, Lion King now came out in 94, so that's 24 years ago. But, you know, in the story that it tells, there's always these kind of epic stories, and they have a lot of echoes of the Lion King story in them, don't they? 
Yeah, I mean, beyond the fact that people are still super hungry for this CG remake to the point of breaking records on YouTube, you managed to see echoes of the Lion King myth in, in a lot of movies. Did you see Black Panther? Yeah. And were you taken at all? Because I was at the similarities. Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> a little bit. And in the Jungle Book, too. The recent the live action that, Jungle Book. Live, very yeah. much, very, very Lion King-y. And then, of course, there's the Lion King. Yeah. Which will be probably be very Lion King. Very, very, it might be very Lion King. <laughs> We're hoping. <laughs> but do they consult with you at nope. all? No. So it's the same thing as the uh, yep. live action. So I, I get the sense that you're not thrilled with these live action remakes because of your lack of ownership and stake in them. Well, there's a lot of reasons. I wasn't totally thrilled with Beauty and the Beast remake because I didn't think it was exactly true to the mythology of the storytelling. I'm not happy that I don't get to participate. Who would be? And I don't know how Lion King is going to be. But the thing is, when you watch that trailer, it, you exactly know what it's going to be because it looks ex exactly like the previous version of Lion King. Shot for much. shot remake. You know, there's been some debate online whether it really needs to exist at all because the original Lion King had a lot of artistry to it. You know, it wasn't just trying to be photorealistic animation. It was, you know, beautiful images. And now it looks like they're just turning it into... What if a bunch of African animals stood around a cliff and an actual baboon held up an actual baby Katzenberg? <laughs> right. I mean, yeah. And, you know, we interviewed her, I guess, a few days before that trailer came online. And so, yeah, I would have liked to know what her reaction was because it's basically a shot by shot thing. I don't know. I, I see Ms. Linda Woolerton as kind of a pioneer who got scalped. You know what I mean? Like she's she helped invent all these stories and she didn't get her due. Yeah, they you know, bake them. and I don't think she hides that. Working in Hollywood is is always sort of a, a devil's handshake, and there's good things that come out of it, and there's bad things that come out of it, and she seems to have found a peace with it, and there's things that she gets out of it that have no dollar sign on it, and they actually do mean everything to her. For me, the blessing that I've had working for the Disney company and creating for them is that I feel like I, I have had these ideas that I got to spread in the world through this huge megaphone and has an automatic built-in audience with automatic acceptance and desire. And so, wow, I get to sneak my ideas in. So I got to sneak in my feminist agenda or whatever that is. Um, so I feel really blessed and lucky that I've had the opportunity to, to do that. You know, my ideas are all over the world. I can go to countries all over the world and see my characters on little lunch boxes. Right. That's a bizarre <laughs> yeah. experience. Yeah, I was curious, like, do kids, do they put together who you are? Does it get explained to them? Or You know, no, but sometimes when I go to, like, I just did the Austin Film Festival. I just went down and did like, some panels. And certain young women, particularly, young women, millennial women, cry. They actually cry. And it's like they cry to meet me. And wow. it's like, Wow. Wow. Mostly because of Belle, with, with how Belle has helped them and changed their lives. And they tell me that I, I want to do this because of, I want to be a writer because of her. You know, so that's an incredible feeling, you know, to have been able to touch people in that way. I loved talking to Linda Wolverton. I thought that she was great. She is a trailblazer, a groundbreaker. All the adjectives that you could ascribe to a screenwriter who's been wildly successful and has 
fought for her vision in these screenplays. And I think that's very admirable. I'm glad we had her on the show. Yeah, and she had a great sense of humor about herself. She wasn't G-rated, that's for sure. You know what I mean? Like, she she was like... You know, she was very candid about candid talking about the good and bad things with working for Disney over the years. She put up with, with our follies. I will say, is The New Lion King a musical? I assume it's a musical. I mean, who goes to The Lion King and doesn't expect to see... Can You Feel the Love Tonight? It'll probably be a mixture of like the old classic Elton John songs and maybe some new ones. I always like to do fake Randy Newman songs for Disney movies that don't have a Randy Newman song. And they're all like, what are you going to do when there's a beast who wants to fall in love with you? Yo, my friend. (laughs) That's the theme from Beauty and the Beast by Randy Newman. (laughs) Okay, do one for Lion King. Now, little Simba was a lion who didn't want to be a king till they held him up in front of a bunch of people said, you're king. He's our friend. Everyone's your friend. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's how they end. They, end. they end by being friends. Right? They're, they're pretty good. So thanks again to this episode's guest, Linda Wolverton. And send in ideas of people that you'd like to see on the show interviewed. And, uh, you know, you can ask questions about previous shows, too, and we'll answer them. That's right, at IHIH at THR.com. And until next time, we'll see you in Hollywood. Hollywood.